Hi, and welcome to the Genesis Podcast. We're so glad to be able to bring a small portion of our community to you through this medium and hope that you'll join us in our endeavor to embolden one another to change the world by effectively representing Jesus Christ. If you would like to know more about who we are as a community, as well as when and where we meet, you can visit us online at thegenesisstory.com. Also, if you have benefited from this podcast in any way or would like to participate in what we're doing here at Genesis, would you consider partnering with us by donating online again at www.thegenesisstory.com. There you can select the giving tab and how you would like to contribute to the general fund or even to the building fund. Remember, we can do more together than we can ever do alone. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. God bless. Good morning. Good morning again to you guys who are here. I've been talking to you. So good morning to you guys who are tuning in. Glad you could be with us here today. Uh, We're going to start the book of Exodus today. And so hopefully that will be something uh, that will be interesting to you guys listening in here. And I want to remind everyone who's here, after I'm done speaking, we're going to have a time for discussion, questions. I love those times. We want to have more of those, find ways to make those things happen. And so uh, we are planning on uh, getting a, having a get-together on October 2nd. And it's going to be at my house, well, Kareen in my house, Um, And so, Corrine's house, yeah. (laughs) Spent the time getting the backyard ready for Lauren's uh, baby shower celebration, uh, whatever you call that thing it was. Um, And so we're going to use our backyard. Hopefully that'll be something where you guys can come and join us. We'll have some food and just a time together because that's important. And we want to develop more time for that to take place. But let's get started this morning, and let's pause, and let's pray. Lord, we once again want to slow our lives down and acknowledge a a bigger picture than what we daily see and live into, and that's who you are and what you are doing and all the mystery that comes along with that, we want to be taken hold of by you, by your Spirit's work, and we ask that this time would be opportunity for that to happen. As we look to the book of Exodus this morning, may we be challenged, may our thoughts be provoked, may we wrestle with some of the things that we talk about, and may In that wrestling, we have some encounter with you, we pray. And we do ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A couple of things, again, for those who have tuned in later. uh, We are planning a get-together at Karina My House on Sunday, October 2nd. I think it's a Sunday. Was it a Sunday? Yeah. Sunday, October 2nd. Uh, I think it was going to be like... 5 p.m. or something like that. We'll get you the details that comes up. Um, So mark that in your calendar for us to be able to get together uh, and eat and enjoy each other's company. Um, Also, uh, 
remind you that we are here because of your donations and giving towards uh, Genesis, and you can do that at thegenesisstory.com, and there are the different ways that you can give, whether it's online or mail, uh, and appreciate that. Um, a lot's happening uh, today uh, in my life. I've got family coming over, and my daughter's supposed to have a baby today, so I've got my phone here. If I get a text and you see me leave, um, that's why. Uh, we can't wait to meet her. It's exciting. Um, I know her name, but I can't tell anybody. I'm sworn to secrecy right now. And so uh, it's a funny thing, names, right? It's just so interesting. And so we're waiting for that, and I'm sure I will post plenty of pictures and things when the event happens. Um, I said the 21st, so we'll see if I'm right. Uh, we got a pool going with the family. We didn't put any money on it. We should have. Anyway, today we're going to start the book of Exodus. And before we jump into the book, I, I wanted to kind of set a stage of why I am teaching things the way I am and the purpose behind that. And I think it's important for me to do that, especially for those people who might be tuning in and say, what's going on? Why is he going through this in this way? I'll probably repeat this as we go through the book so that it's clear, because I, I think it's important. You know, when I started Genesis, one of the things that I wanted to see take place is I wanted to help free people from a mindset of the Bible that I believed was harmful, uh, a way of looking at Scripture that was actually taking us away from the character of Christ and causing harm with the people around them who maybe they loved. And so I think what I saw taking place is that people were really turning the Bible into an idol where they worshiped the Bible as much as they did God and saw them as the same, that the Bible was the same as God. And that troubled me. And it troubled me because when people started using the scripture, kind of like the Pharisees did in Jesus's time to try and say, this is who God is without any mystery without any humility, it started alienating them from people. Their child would have a wedding and get married, but they wouldn't attend the wedding because they didn't approve of the relationship that they were in because they were living together or that person wasn't, quote, a believer or, or whatever. It was the you know same gender. All these things would then determine how they would interact with their family member based on a few verses in the Bible instead of perhaps the character of Christ as we as Christians follow Christ. And, and it troubled me that the, the things in Scripture became legalistic. There's a quote by F.F. Bruce that always just struck me. He said that Paul would be rolling over in his grave if he knew that we made his writings into Torah. That we have legalized the scriptures in a way that now they no longer produce life. 
and that troubled me. And I don't want it to come across that I am trying to demean or diminish Scripture. It's powerful, and it's been powerful in my life. When my mom was at home in hospice care and she wasn't able to leave and I and other people in my family would go there, there would be times where I'd go there and I would just open the Bible to passages and I would read to her. You know, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He causes me to lie down in green pasture. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. That's powerful. Those words are healing. Right? Or Romans 8, what can separate us from the love of God? Not death nor life. Things present, things the future, height, the depth. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Or John 14, Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me and my father's house is many rooms. If it weren't so, I would have told you and I go to prepare a place for you that where I am there you might be also and be with me forever. I would read those things to her because they're part of our faith. They are they're things that minister to us and, and bring us strength. But they're not magic. And the Bible isn't magic. One time I came to the house and another member of the family was there because someone was almost always there with my mom and they were reading the Bible to her as well. And as I went in, I heard them reading and they were reading from Leviticus and they were reading about skin disease. And, and I was like, what the flip, right? What, what, what is this about? And I understand because the idea, well, it's the Bible, so it's the word of God, so it doesn't matter what it is, it's going to bring about this kind of healing. And it just doesn't work that way. Not everything in it has to be taken as directly from God. If we come across something that doesn't make sense or is troubling, we can wrestle with it and we don't have to just say, well, here's what God says. Here's what the Bible says. For example, in the book of Exodus, Exodus 21, verse 7, if a man sells his daughter as a servant, she is not to go free as male servants do. Okay, everyone, right? What do you do with that? It's in your Bible. Go a little further in chapter 21, verse 20. Anyone who beats their male or female slave with a rod must be punished if the slave dies as a direct result. But if they are not to be, they are not to be punished if the slave recovers after a day or two since the slave is their property. That's in the Bible. There's also the difference between a person who is a slave who dies and a person who is a free person who dies where the life is required from the one who kills the person who's free, but not required for killing a slave because a slave is property. So 
if you just make this blanket statement where this is just God speaking, because that's what's happening in Exodus, and you don't acknowledge these kinds of things, and you don't stop and say, okay, something else is going on where I have to wrestle with this and not just use this as a book of magic where anything I say, you know, you'll use the scripture from Isaiah, my words will never return void. And so you talk to someone who is, you know, dying of cancer about skin disease. Well, it's in the Bible doesn't mean that it's going to be relevant for the situation that they're going through. And it doesn't mean that you should just give it out as if it's some magic book. And those were the problems that I had and still have. All this to say that my desire isn't to discredit the scripture, but to see them in light of what they are, ancient yet inspired, obscure, diverse, yet enduring. And to give them place, but the proper place. And that's so important. As we go through the book of Exodus, there's usually some questions that start off. One of the questions is, you know, it's a controversial book. And one of these controversies centers around the question of historical accuracy. Did these things even happen and who wrote the book of Exodus? So let's start with who wrote the book of Exodus. Traditionally, the view is that Moses wrote Exodus somewhere between the 15th and 13th century BCE. And the first date is based on a literal reading of 1 Kings 6, which places the building of Solomon's temple at 966 BCE or thereabouts. And then it says 480 years after the Exodus. And so what they do is they take that 966 and they go back 480 years to get to that date, which places the Exodus at 1446 BCE. This date, however, has some problems if we are not reading the Bible as I believe it is given. And one of the problems is reading 480 years literally rather than symbolically is a modern assumption. That's how we read things. And so we assume things are that way. But in the Old Testament, numbers, especially nice round numbers, are more often exaggerated or symbolic than literal. For example, Moses was 80 years old at the Exodus. And that's in Exodus 7, 7. He was 120 years old at his death in Deuteronomy 34. The ancient Jewish tradition completes the picture by adding that Moses was 40 years old when he fled to Midian in chapter two, thus dividing his life into three 40-year periods, exactly 40. He wasn't 41, he wasn't 82. He was 40, he was 80, he was 120 just happens to be that way, right? The Israelites also spend exactly 40 years in the wilderness. Later, Jesus would go and wander for 40 days. What's with this number 40? It's very symbolic. It's a go-to number symbolizing a complete or right period of time. And 480 is 12 times 40, 12 likely symbolizing 12 tribes of Israel. There's 144,000 in Revelation. 
Again, a nice round number, 12 times 12,000, whatever those numbers are. It's nice and round. Really, there's not 144,003. No, there's just 144,000. The number is symbolic. It draws on ancient conventions of the symbolic value of round numbers to mark off a sacred moment. And, and see, that's one of the problems we've been having, like going through Genesis and saying, well, when did this all begin? And we have all these numbers and we start taking them literally and not realizing that there's also this symbolism in ancient writing. And so we come up with dates that don't jive with history or, or don't jive with archaeology. And so we have to be careful trying to accurately date when things happen based on these writings because they weren't meant to tell time as much as they were meant to give meaning. There are also linguistic and archaeological problems with dating the time of Moses to the mid-1400s. And you can look up some of these things on your own. There's an Egyptian monument called the, I don't know what it's called, Mernipah Stale. The, it, it mentions that there was a group called the Israelites in the area of Canaan around 1208 BCE. And the language used in most of Exodus is a language that is written at a much later period of time, like 700 BCE, except for chapter 15, which is a song of Moses that has language that is much older, probably around 1200 BCE. And so who wrote the book of Exodus? Well, it doesn't make sense that it's Moses when his lifetime would have had to happen at a longer period of time than when the book was actually compiled and some of the things that we see in this. So what? All this to say that the book of Exodus, as we know it, simply could not be as old as the 13th century and could not have been written by Moses. Plus, the Torah, I mean, it, a lot of it's written in the third person. He is a character, just like Abraham was, just like Jacob was, just like Noah was. There is Moses. He's one of the main characters, but he's a character. And Moses went up. Does, is Moses writing and Moses went up or he write, I wrote up? What about in Numbers where it says Moses was the humblest man on the earth? Did Moses write that? Again, Moses is a character in a story that's being told. Exodus, like Genesis, was probably a compilation of ancient stories and writings put together at a later point in time for the purpose of a people at the time that it was written. And I'm sorry if this is a little boring, if you're thinking like, what is, so what? But it's important. Who and when questions are very important when reading a book. Imagine if I was writing a biography about Martin Luther King Jr. and I didn't talk about the civil rights movement in the United States. You would get a totally different perception on who he was because that time and that place and those events make sense only because of what he did at that time. Otherwise, it would be so out of line. It'd be hard to connect the dots, but once you have the place and time, and then you have the person, the writing starts to come together. Exodus gives us so many things that are just like, okay, what is this, right? 
Here's some of them. Snakes that turn into snaps, staffs and then back again. Water that turns to blood. A limitless swarm of frogs, gnats, flies, and locusts. The blotting out of the sun. An avenging, an avenging angel or something like that. Swooping about and killing people. And of course, there's the parting of the Red Sea, and then it's swallowing up the Egyptian army and killing it. It's easy to see Exodus more like a story than history because of these kinds of incredible events that are being presented. Now, Exodus has historical roots. The story of liberated slaves isn't simply just made up, but how this historically rooted story is told in Exodus raises some questions, especially when we start seeing there is no archaeological evidence that the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt except for the book that we have here. That's a little crazy. And you would think monumental events like the sun going out, like the whole sea turning into blood, someone would write that down. They wrote other things down. They didn't write those things down. And the only things that we have that we kind of gravitate to, to again, try to make this book what we think it should be, are things like finding brick that has straw in it because it talks about the Hebrews making bricks with straw in it. Okay, Maybe everyone made bricks. I don't know like that, but it it doesn't say that this is what happened because the Israelites were here. But then you have a song of Moses, like in Exodus 15, that talks about a Pharaoh. He's not named. Talks about deliverance from the Egyptians, about them drowning in the sea. And so you have story about something happening, even though... We don't see a large historical account. And there's a terminology that was given by actually an evangelical uh, scholar. I don't know his name. I heard about this term from Pete Enns. And it's called mythicized history. A story rooted in some historical way, which is a good thing to embrace, even if all bets are off on how much is historical or not. And I'm going to throw that out at the beginning because that just kept coming up with Genesis, right? Well, is this true? Is that true? What's true? There's no way to know exactly what things are historical and what things are mythicized. And the myth or a myth is a story about the gods at the dawn of time that helps explain why things are the way they are here and now. Ancient people in general were quite keen, right? And we know this from our understanding of ancient history on seeing the world around them in a light, in light of a bigger reality, namely the cosmic realm. Myths connect these two worlds, the cosmic world, that that's beyond, that's bigger, that we don't understand, and the world that we are living in. The Exodus story isn't made up, but as we'll see, it explains Israel's deliverance from Egypt in terms of a bigger reality that goes back to the dawn of time, to creation itself. The history is mythicized. That's different than having historical 
mystery. I was sharing earlier, historical myth, or historical myth. Historical myth is Captain America, right? Taking place in World War II and then in modern day. If you see in the movies, he's in New York, right? Well, if you go to New York, you will never see Captain America because he never was there. It's a historical place, but it's a myth that's placed in there. As opposed to mythical history is something that took place, but it's mythicized, made bigger, to try and connect the realm of that which is much bigger than we understand. And it's important to understand this because the idea of God and the vastness of God is light years beyond what we will ever be able to understand. And so these stories help us to grasp things that are bigger than our ability to fully understand that. Again, there is no evidence for any Israelite presence in the land of Egypt at any point in history other than that which is found in the biblical story itself. It doesn't mean it didn't happen, but after reading the story, you would think there would be more evidence than what we find. What do we do with that? We take it for what it is. And this is where I go back to not making the Bible something that we worship. Well, the Bible says it, so it has to be this. It depends on what you think the Bible is and its purpose is. When it was written, who it was written for. If you don't take those things in place and the way writing took place, you're going to miss so much of what happens. The book of Exodus tells the story of the Israelites, their deliverance from slavery in Egypt, and their encounter with God, a God named Yahweh, at Mount Sinai that also is called Mount Horeb, just to make things difficult, I guess. I don't know. It sets the stage for the remaining books of the Torah in which the Israelites prepare to enter Canaan and set up a permanent kingdom. At least that was the plan. The Exodus, in fact, is really all about getting to Mount Sinai and how the events there prepare the Israelites for their ultimate destiny, a kingdom in a land of their own. And we talked about this through Genesis. The first five books have at the center Mount Sinai and what takes place there. And so all that we're going to be reading is pointing to that, and then we're going to live there for a while as you go through the other books, which I don't think we're going to go through those as well. One of the ideas, and one of the big ideas, is that Yahweh and Yahweh alone is worthy to be worshipped. In the Old Testament, the Exodus story is often cited as God's great act for Israel his deliverance, and the primary reason why the Israelites are delivered are so that they can worship Yahweh alone. It's one of their themes. It's part of their foundation. It's one of those important themes in all of their writings is Yahweh and who he is. A second big idea that comes out through the book of Exodus is related to the first, and that is to save or to recreate. And we saw this in Genesis where there was chaos and God bringing order. The Israelites are commanded to worship Yahweh exclusively, not only because he is their savior, but because Yahweh is the creator. 
the story of how God delivers the Israelites from Egypt looks a lot like the creation story in Genesis 1. The Red Sea, which threatens to end their journey before it begins, is split into two, revealing dry ground and their salvation as they walk on it. The Israelites are granted a safe passage. It goes back to God's act of creation in Genesis when God separated the waters on the second and third day. Here's the land, here's the sea. We, we see these kinds of pictures and themes showing up. It has a lot of moving parts. The bottom line is that when God saves Israel, it's an act of creation or perhaps an act of recreation. To save is to recreate because to be saved is to start anew. Think about that. Think about being saved and starting anew. Think about what that means when you hear the words being born again, a new creation in Christ. These are old themes about what salvation looks like. It's a a starting again. So tying salvation to God's act of creation, it's a big deal in Exodus as well as in the Gospels because the Gospels come from this tradition. And the third big idea running through Exodus is God's mountain. God, it seems, lives out in the wilderness and he lives somewhere on a mountain. Now that sounds strange to us, but it is the story that we read. That's where God is encountered, on a mountain. Now we can look at it all these years later and say, oh, well, what this means is, but at that time, what it meant was that God is there on this high place, on this mountain, usually called Mount Sinai again, but sometimes called Mount Horeb. The whole point is getting the Israelites out of Egypt. It's not so that they can roam free like ill-mannered toddlers in a restaurant. It's so that they can then gather together and make their way to God's mountain and worship God, Yahweh, the one true God. And it brings us to the next big idea. God gives a lot of commands. And it's laid out in Exodus. The Israelites have a habit of just always complaining, right? And God has to give them these commands to help them deal with their complaining, help them understand they're different than these people. Here are the laws that they are to live by compared to the laws of these other people. And there's a lot of laws that are given throughout these five books. And then the next big thing in Exodus is that the Israelites complain a lot and rebel They quickly rebel against Moses and God. They seem to have a lot of difficulty sticking to the program. And of course, there are a lot of other ideas, but these are kind of the ones that I think are worth keeping in mind as we go through the book of Exodus. That God is recreating, saving, might say delivering, that God is on a mountain to be worshiped, that God has a lot of laws and rules to follow, and that the people keep on complaining. The story that keeps on 
coming up over and over again. We, we see this happen throughout Exodus. When we saw Abraham in Genesis 12 go into Egypt, we talked about this. He went in, lied, said Sarah was his sister. And then what happened to Pharaoh? There was a plague. And then they were an exodus. He left with more than what he went in. Very similar to this story. So similar that it is believed that the book of Genesis, even though it comes first in our Bible, was written after Exodus because it's pointing to Exodus. And there's other things in that that tell the same story. Again, for us, it's like, no, this one's first, but anyone who's a Star Wars fan knows that the first movie was actually the fourth. It's not uncommon in storytelling for these kinds of things to happen. And and so we see that there is this constant going back to Exodus. The story of Exodus from Egypt isn't an expanded version of Abraham's story, but the opposite. And it happens over and over throughout both the Old and New Testaments. The grumbling in the wilderness waiting for Moses while he's up on Mount Sinai. There's the complaining, the complaining when they're in the wilderness. We've been eating nothing but manna. We want some food and there's complaining. We see that happen throughout the scripture again and again. The grumbling waiting, the grumbling in 1 Samuel wanting a king like the other nations complaining, and then they're going to get a king. And there is the warning, when you get a king, the king will be like Pharaoh and will enslave your people, pointing back to the Exodus story. Again, it's the book that keeps on giving. It shows up over and over again. Again, Matthew portrays Jesus as the second Moses, right? He wanders in the wilderness for 40 days. God's commandments We're given on a mountain. Jesus goes to a mount and gives a new command. Pointing back to Exodus. Isaiah describes leaving Babylon as an exodus, a new beginning. It's a book that keeps on giving, a story that keeps being told. And that's why it has such longevity because the things in the story are things that we are able to grab hold of and embrace. This deliverance of God hearing the cry of his people, he does again when they're in Babylon, is something that the slaves grab hold of and it meant something to them because of their situation. And so there are so many things in this book that I think we can draw from and lean into that are good without having to try and make it something that it's not. Sometimes the best things take a while to be seen and uncover. It's funny, I was talking to my son yesterday. He's coming over today and my kid's bought me a smoker for my birthday. 
And so I finally assembled it. I haven't been able to assemble it because my hand was broken, just all these other things going on. Finally put it together, and I made a tri-tip, trying it out. Had some chicken. It's been good, but kids are coming over. I put in a brisket, okay? But a brisket, you can't just throw on there and cook. I put the brisket. Well, I started preparing the brisket last night at 7 o'clock. 7 o'clock, I took it out. I cut off some of the fat because I watch YouTube videos of guys who know what they're doing. And I started seasoning the thing like crazy. I got the special rub, put it on there, and then I let it sit for three hours. Just let, do nothing. It just sat there for three hours. I'd walk by it and go, man, when can I eat that thing? Well, you ain't going to eat it for a while. It sat for three hours. After three hours, then I turned, well, I turned the, smoker on a half hour before because it had to warm up to the right temperature and I put it at a low 195 and I put the brisket on at 195 and then I set my alarm for eight hours later that was 10 30 when I put the brisket on 6 30 my alarm goes off you got to go check the brisket eight hours later and then what I had to do according to the experts is I had to check the temperature, and it had to be about 150 degrees, which it was. I was so happy. And it looked just like the video of the guy who had it. And I took it, and then what I did, I had to put it in butcher paper, and I had to wrap it up. And I put it in butcher paper, and then I had to put it back on for another maybe eight hours. It's supposed to be done around 2.30, When it gets to be about 200 degrees internal temperature, then it's ready to be taken out, but not eaten yet. Then it has to be sat and allowed to rest for two hours. We're not going to be able to eat this thing till 4.30. I started working on it at 7. I was talking to my son, and he goes, how many illustrations are you going to use today about... Just one. We don't see the meaning of things until time passes and we get to experience. The book of Exodus is an experience that has more to it as our life goes on and we have experiences. And we go through similar things. And the power and the beauty in the book isn't the legality of it isn't the literal timing of it. It is the mythical history that is also ours that we get to experience and live into. And I hope that that can be seen and enjoyed as we go through this book. Let's pray. Father, this book has been read, been studied, been important for ages. The stories in it have sparked so many people to live in a different way, to see hope, to see creation again, to see deliverance, to see faithfulness, to see patience, 
and the importance of it. And we get to today sit before this book and ask of you to do something in it to us. I pray we would be open. I pray we'd be patient. I pray we would have a good mindset of what we are looking at so that we don't come with erroneous conclusions, meaningless objectives that don't connect to the importance of what's being said. Lord, this is one of many ways to look at this, I understand. But help us to wrestle with it and to come away a little bit richer because of our time here. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. May we allow the freedom of Christ to permeate our lives even as we read scripture. May it move us forward into his character and his likeness. In his name, amen. God bless you guys. Again, we're going to have some time for discussion afterwards here. Uh, We'll see you guys online next week. Take care. You have been listening to the Genesis Podcast. We invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.